So we're coming back to uh, Genesis again tonight, and uh, I sent out the handout, so hopefully you have that in front of you. If not, just follow along on the slides, and we'll talk about some of the main points uh, that we uh, have hinted at on Sunday morning when we were going through that series, Far From the Shallow. Uh, so let's begin, and uh, what I want to do is, first of all, talk about um, the deja vu effect that uh, happens between chapters one and two. There are two creation accounts that you find in the Genesis uh, narrative. And the first one uh, found in chapter one uh, is different than the one that is found in chapter two. However, we do get a sense of a repetition of certain things between these two accounts with a different angle in chapter two than in chapter one. And in chapters two through four, which is not, is not only the story of the creation of Adam and Eve, but uh, also their sons, there is some deja vu that's going on there as it relates to uh, the history of the nation of Israel. So I want to just kind of highlight a few of those things tonight. Uh, in chapter two, verse four, it reads, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Um, you notice here this uh, phrase, this is the account of, that is that marker in the book of Genesis. Uh, it's called a toledot in Hebrew, and it's how the book is structured. So every time that is uh, stated, then there's usually a genealogy that follows that is then supplemented with some stories regarding that part of the family line. So in many ways, chapter one is kind of introduction to the rest of Genesis. And what you find is that while there is a repetition of the creation account, there's some substantial differences that you can notice between the two chapters. For example, I've listed on the screen here, in chapter one, vegetation is created on day three, the animals on day five and six, and then humans on day six. However, in chapter two, the focus is upon humans and uh, this human is created and then animals are created. And then the text goes on and talks about how um, none of these animals was an adequate helper uh, to Adam. And so God puts him to sleep and out of his side is the creation of Eve. So there's a sub substantial difference in the way the creation account works. And we said last week that chapter one is kind of similar to some of the other creation accounts in the ancient Near East. And we talked about Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian account. It's not the only account, but it's one of several that even predate the book of Genesis. There's a different feel between chapters one and two. God seems to be more high and lofty and powerful in chapter one. He speaks and things come into existence, where in chapter two, God is more human-like. He bends over Adam. He breathes into him the breath of life. He does an operation that takes a rib uh, to create Eve. So there's kind of a different emphasis between the two. So we might say this, when we're looking at chapter one, it is the story of the cosmos, you know, the entire created order. But in chapter two, it seems as though that is the beginning of the story of Israel. And so we're going to see that a little bit. And the only other thing I want to say about these two things before we move on is uh, Genesis 2, actually, most scholars believe, is the older of the two stories. In other words, if, um, if we were to begin Genesis chapter 2 as the beginning of the book, it would go right out of the gate. This is the account um, uh, of the heavens and the earth when they were created. It seems as though, and you'll see here on your uh, on the screen, that chapter one seems to have been added later. And the reason is because it seems as though after the story of Israel is formed in the book of Genesis, 
um, they go back and add chapter one as a way of establishing that Israel's God is the one true God, the creator God, and is greater than all other gods that other nations during their time were worshiping. Now, what we want to tease out tonight is in chapters two through four, it's almost like a miniature model of what the nation of Israel went through. And I'm going to show you that by giving you some uh, comparisons. As we get into the, this, um, it's interesting when we come to chapter four, and we'll come back to chapter two in a moment, but if you have a Bible, uh, in chapter four, we're told about the family of Adam and Eve, and it says here, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Now, if we're thinking of this sequentially, um, one of the things that we're told is Adam and Eve are portrayed as the first human beings, and then they have a son, Cain, and later they will have Abel, and of course we know the story of Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel, um, and then something interesting happens. So I'm jumping down past the Cain and Abel story to the consequence of what Cain did. And it is quite intriguing as to what happens here. Um, if you look in chapter 4, verse 12, it talks about some of the consequences of his actions. And it says, when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. And then it makes this comment. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So one of the consequences of Cain killing Abel is God says, you're going to be on the run. Now, the question is, from whom? So the text seems to be saying, you know, there's only three people on the face of the earth after Cain kills Abel. However, uh, keep going. In verse 13, Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence and I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. Who are these other people that are going to kill him? So the interesting thing here is it seems as though if you read the text closely, there's other people that are in existence at this time. So what is being portrayed in Adam and Eve conceiving and giving birth to two boys, Cain and Abel, is a spotlight just on them and their family. It's not the complete picture of how many humans there are on the face of the earth at this point in time. Does that make sense? So, um, what happens next is Cain, as he wanders the earth, finally settles down in a city or a place or a land called Nod, N-O-D. You see this down a couple of verses later. Um, God makes him a promise in verse 15. Not so if anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one found him that uh, who found him would kill him. And uh, so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Um, that's where we get this idea uh, from the John Steinbeck, East of Eden uh, mm -hmm. title. Um, so Adam and Eve must leave the garden. Cain travels east of Eden as well. But What's interesting is he settles down. And as he settles down, the text goes on and says that, verse 17, Cain lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad and Irad was the father of some mispronounceable uh, names here. Uh, <laughs> but the point is, the text then jumps to Lamech finding a wife. Now, here's a question. 
that often comes up in Sunday school. And it comes from kids, most of the time, where did Cain get his wife? So uh, <laughs> maybe the quickest answer a teacher could say, in the land of Nod, of course, that's where he got his wife. <laughs> but um, yeah, right. Winking, winking, and blinking and nod. Um, even kids see the incongruity of the text. Is what I'm trying to say. Um, if you have two children and one of them is dead, that only leaves three people. So where does the rest of the uh, these uh, people come from? And the text does not tell us, because that's not the focus of the text, to give us a chronicle of the beginning of the human species. What it is doing is introducing a similar experience that has happened in the life of Israel. So just keep this in the back of your mind at this point. When the nation of Israel goes into exile, where do they go? They're taken into Babylon, which is east of the promised land. The land of Nod, of course. Um, so the explanation, I think, when we tease this out, is that there are already other people living outside the Garden of Eden. We're not told how they get there, when they get there, uh, that type of thing. But it is one of those individuals that, Cain takes as a wife and then begins a family of his own. So some interesting observations there. Any thoughts there? So that brings us back to Adam. So I jumped forward with Cain. Now I want to come back to Adam for a moment. Maybe the Adam and Eve story is not so much a story about the first human beings but a focus on two human beings that begin this journey of a nation that will be established from their line. And that is obviously Israel. So Adam is created when we look at um, chapter two, let's go back to chapter two for a moment. Here we see that Adam is created. He it, uh, tells us here, Verse 7 of chapter 2, the Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostril the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now notice verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So Adam is not created in the Garden of Eden. He is placed into the Garden of Eden. So he's created outside the garden. Uh, the name Eden means paradise. Um, so he is given this opportunity to live within this very plush, uh, prov provided for area of the world that uh, he is then to uh, be fruitful and multiply and so on and so forth. Now, the only thing that is a restriction that we're told in the text is in verse 17, that in the middle of this garden is a tree and there's a command, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Now that command is even given before Eve is created. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So the only restriction that Adam has after he realizes the animals are not enough is that he can't partake in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then God provides him a helper, a partner, um, and, and then they are told to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, the warning not to eat is then violated in chapter three. We know that story where Eve is then tempted by a serpent, and the serpent says that uh, God is restricting you uh, from uh, what is good, and that is uh, the ability to know good and evil. 
And then God says, you're going to surely die. And uh, the serpent contradicts that in chapter three, verse four, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing for the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. I want you to keep that in the back of your mind, because I think that's an insight to understand what's going on here and and, uh, an inadequate way of gaining wisdom is to, um, is to disregard the commands of God. Now, so she eats of it, gives it to Adam, he eats of it, but what God warned that they would die doesn't happen. So they don't immediately fall over. What we do find is that they are exiled. So after they hide from God because they feel that they are naked, after God says, hey, there's some consequences in chapter three of what you've done, then, um, you know, then we see the consequence of their um, disobedience. Verse 23 of chapter three. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So they're kicked out of Eden. Uh, there is a roadblock so that they cannot come back to the garden. So what's, here's, the, here's the issue. Adam and Eve eat, but they don't die. The consequence is they are evicted from the garden. And what you find is that death has a metaphorical meaning here. Uh, and that is they're exiled from paradise, which is a kind of death. That is, they don't have the life and the vitality uh, that they had in the Garden of Eden. And that seems to be the connection that Ezekiel chapter 37 is making. And in the context of chapter 37 of Ezekiel, there's a connection that is made between death and exile. In other words, the nation going into exile is a form of death-like existence. And um, so why is exile described as death? Well, Sometimes I think we think that when the nation of Israel was displaced from their land and taken into uh, the land of Babylon, we might think in the back of our mind, it's sort of like they were just relocated, but that's not true. It's not like they were pursuing a new opportunity in a different land. Rather, the consequence was they are no longer in that place where God promised they would be given a place in the Abrahamic covenant. And so in the Abrahamic covenant, chapter 12, 15, 17 of Genesis, the promise is that you're going to have a land, you're going to live in that land, you're going to thrive in that land. And guess what? That land will be described a little bit later in the Old Testament as a land flowing with milk and honey. And that, again, that's a metaphor of the vibrancy of that land. So Israel now to be exiled is to be removed from the land that was promised through the Abrahamic covenant. And so in a sense, Israel has died, metaphorically speaking. Uh, it was in that land that they were to thrive and become a great nation that would then bless other nations. But if they're outside the land, it's as if they have died. So the connection between exile and death is connected into this idea of being in the land and thriving, being out of the land and dying or, um, you know, being diminished from the Abrahamic promises. Okay, let me see if you have some questions or thoughts on any of that so far. Because this is how it's going to look. 
I think Genesis 2 through 4 is providing for us a mirror comparison. So Adam is created by God and exiled from paradise because of his disobedience and, and Eve as well. Israel is created by God through the covenant made to Abraham, but they are exiled from the promised land because of their disobedience. So look at this, uh, look at this chart. So if you can kind of envision, there's parallels going on here. Adam is created out of the dust, while Israel is created out of a place of dust in the desert. They're, in, they're held captive in Egypt. Uh, they are promised, uh, Adam and Eve are promised a garden paradise. Israel is promised that God will take them into a land flowing with milk and honey. So in other words, kind of a paradise uh, uh, place. They are given a command to follow. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and even, evil, uh, good and evil. And Israel is given not just one command, but now Moses is given the uh, commandments on Mount Sinai. And these commandments, they are to follow. And what's interesting is the parallel. Adam and Eve, if they obey, they have life in the garden. If they disobey, they are exiled. Likewise, the nation of Israel, if they are to obey the uh, commandments given to Moses, they will keep possession of the land. If they disobey, they will be exiled. So I want you to keep your thumb here in Genesis, and I want you to go over to Deuteronomy chapter 30. So it's only a couple of uh, books to the right here from Genesis. When you get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, I want you to notice uh, what is said here. I'm going to start uh, up in verse 1. It says, when all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortune and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. So you see there is this prediction that if they don't follow the covenant that was given to Moses, they will be displaced. Now jump down to verse 11. So you can kind of hear an imaginary voice in, in, the, in the background saying, but that's too hard. Um, and it goes on and says in verse 11, now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend, ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and it's in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I've set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love your God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. And then you will live and increase and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your hearts turn away, and you're not obedient, and if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land. You are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. So this passage is sort of the same parallel that to an entire nation or people group uh, as it was to Adam and Eve. So it's almost as if Adam and Eve are kind of the nation of Israel in miniature. What happened to them is what will happen to the nation as well. And here we see this mirror comparison. Um, and so Genesis is doing something more than giving us just some type of historical account of the creation of the first human beings. And if that's true, Genesis serves as kind of the first act 
of a uh, five-act play, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where you find uh, their history is, um, is unfolded. And of course, then later you get the prophets and, and that type of thing that kind of supplement this call to come back to the Lord. So I kept going uh, pretty quickly there. Do you have some thoughts or questions or comments? So um, I want to suggest that we who have kind of grown up in Protestant evangelical Christianity have it really only been given kind of one perspective on the book of Genesis. And there's other perspectives that um, seem to make a lot of sense. So let me share one or two of those with you. So the popular version that we're often told in Sunday school is Adam and Eve are created. And it's kind of like they're this shiny brand new automobile that just comes off the assembly line in the Ford factory. And they're perfect. There's no dents, there's no rust, there's no mechanical problems. Uh, all they got to do is the required maintenance uh, to, to keep it going. Um, and yet what we find is that Adam and Eve disobey. And consequently now um, there's consequences, not just for them, but for all of humanity. So there was a guy by the name of St. Augustine. He lived from 354 to 430 um, CE, current area or AD, whichever you prefer. And he said that when Adam and Eve sinned, they established the guilt of the entire human race so that that guilt is passed down from one generation to the next generation, even before, um, you know, a baby is old enough to make a choice of disobedience against God. And it's that view that kind of took root in the Western church. Um, a little bit of church history is the church kind of divided between the East and the West, Rome being the capital of the West, Constantinople being the capital city in the Eastern church. And they had kind of two different theological directions that they traveled in on some issues. And one of them is this idea of original sin and the guilt of the human race. And the Western church said, well, uh, since everyone is guilty, then God had to provide something. And that is some type of an atonement or uh, and a, a fancy word for it is a propitiation uh, whereby God can forgive mankind because we are born sinners as we come into the world. Um, and of course, that then uh, leads to Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And that kind of, that's one interpretive strand. However, the Eastern church took kind of a different direction. They did not see Adam and Eve as that bright, shiny new automobile off the assembly line. They saw that Adam and Eve were more like children that are born into a world and they are young, they're naive, they're susceptible to the craftiness of this serpent that we're introduced to, and they fall. Um, not necessarily from perfection, but they fail because they're immature, because they lack knowledge and discernment, and uh, they fail to grow up into wisdom and maturity. And that kind of leads to a couple of different interpretive directions. Um, you know, Adam and Eve are not perfect superhumans, but they are like our children when they're born into the family and they have to learn and they have to grow and they have to mature. And the command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not a commandment 
uh, that the serpent is saying to say, God doesn't want you to know uh, the difference between good and evil. I mean, much of the rest of the Bible is central to that, to be able to develop discernment and to know good and bad. Rather, they were not ready for the type of things that they wanted to have instantaneously. They didn't grow into that. And I think when we think about our own kids, they're not ready for certain things uh, at, at a young age. You have to grow into things. So you don't hand your five-year-old your car keys and say, hey, have a spin around the block. They have to grow into maturity and learning how to uh, handle an automobile and that type of thing. So do you see there's kind of a different perspective now all these people are Christians, all of them love Jesus, but they kind of see the Genesis text through different lenses a little bit. And, um, and so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil seems to be something that is off limits to them, not because it's bad, but because they're not ready for it yet. In other words, they have to grow into something uh, before they partake of it. So uh, does that make sense? I'm just talking about two different directions that the, the church had to, to work through when it comes to the Genesis text. Any thoughts there? I do. Yes. Um, if Adam and Eve uh, are not the only people on the face of the earth at the time, <clears throat> If Adam and Eve are perfect and they sin and they bring sin nature and bring, give it to the next generations, subsequent generations, when did those other people sin? And when did those other people get the sin nature? Well, let's see that it takes it in two different directions, doesn't it? So... In the Western church, you are born with a sin nature, um, and consequently, uh, you need the atonement of Christ, and much of the church believed that you also needed to be baptized because God would condemn babies, um, you know, if they were not baptized. So that's that led to a tradition of infant baptism, uh, where... Um, it was not just kind of a welcoming into the Christian community. It was this baby was baptized to safeguard against God's judgment because of their sin nature. The other direction is that if babies are not born sinners, they become sinners because there is this tendency of all human beings um, to to do the wrong thing. And, and because of this uh, propensity that human beings have to not listen and not obey and to, to make choices that is not only bad for them, but for other people as well, that um, you find that um, very early on, the stubbornness of kids uh, it does, I think we all see that. What is the first word that they learn? No, usually. Uh, no. Uh, sit down. No. Eat your supper. No. You know, whatever it may be. So it does not fully, how do I want to say this? It does not fully explain how we all fall into this tendency that we all make choices that are not good for us. But what it does do is it relieves this, I guess, I guess awkwardness um, uh, that would God really condemn a baby uh, that has no ability to choose? So that led to another kind of subsequent belief, and that is, well, no, God doesn't hold those babies accountable until the age of accountability. I think we've all heard that. And so, and we've just randomly pulled out of the air the age of 12 or thereabouts. 
as kind of the age of accountability. Well, I've known some quite smart 12-year-olds and I've known some quite stupid 12-year-olds. So, I mean, it, one, how can you randomly pick a, a, a number like that? So um, I, that, that's a great question, isn't it? I mean, when do we become sinners? I mean, the Bible's clear, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Is it from birth or is it after birth and as we grow in our ability to make choices with our free will that we begin to see this propensity that we have to make the wrong choices and, and to be resistant and rebellious? Is it possible that their fall was wanting to look for wisdom other places than from God. And that was the downfall, that was the original sin, is trying to make life work and have wisdom apart from getting it from God. Kind of usurping God. I'm going to figure it out. I'm yeah. going to get it over here. I'm not going to kind of that self-centeredness that right I don't I, I and I'm gonna do it behind God's back I'm mm -hmm. not gonna go to him for it I'm going to do it on my own my own way well isn't that what kids do to their parents so mm -hmm. if, if we can kind of picture God as kind of our heavenly father uh, or heavenly mother because he's not male or female um, and we doing things behind his back quote unquote, it's very similar to what kids sometimes do with their parents as well. Either it's that adventuresome, inquisitiveness uh, that they do that, or sometimes it's just downright rebellion that they don't want to listen. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it could be that other people that lived on the earth at the same time, they had the same ability to follow God or to do their own thing. And maybe that helps explain the Cain and Abel story. So when Cain offers a certain type of sacrifice and Abel offers a different type of sacrifice, God accepts the one and rejects the other. Maybe it's not the type of sacrifice. Maybe it's the attitude of one versus the other that already has kind of been established, right, uh, in, cre in the created order. And I have, you know, I'm doing it my way. Yeah, forget of, you, right. So I think it's just living apart from God and trying to make things work apart from God. That's the fall mm -hmm. of man. Do you guys have some thoughts on that at all? Then we'll move to the next one. So th this leads to a question. Uh, does original sin make sense? Um, so Augustine believed the sin of Adam made the whole world guilty for all generations. So how does God hold me responsible? Subsequent question. How does God hold me responsible for something that Adam did? Assuming he's historical and not a metaphor. If he's a real historical person, his one action condemns the whole human race. How does that work? Um, so what's interesting is where in Genesis or even the rest of the Old Testament, does it ever mention Adam's disobedience causing universal human sinfulness and guilt? It doesn't. The only one that mentions that is not, is not until the New Testament where the apostle Paul in Romans chapter five seems to suggest that by the one decision of Adam, uh, all die. And I want you to hang on to that. Uh, all die, not necessarily all are condemned, but all die. And by Christ, all are made alive. So we're not saying that sin is not real. We all know we're sinners and fall short of the glory of God, as Paul said. However, um, inherited sinfulness is not one of the curses that you find in Genesis chapter three. The ground is cursed. 
giving childbirth uh, is something that uh, is uh, part of the ongoing consequence of, um, you know, the imperfection of man. But what you find is there's no mention of inherited guilt. Secondly, throughout the Old Testament, pleasing God through obedience is both expected, um, it's commanded, and it's thought of being doable as well. Um, you don't find anywhere in the Old Testament that says what is often said in churches a lot of times, and that is God hates you, he's not pleased with you, you can never do anything right, the only person that God has ever been pleased with is Jesus, so you better accept Jesus, that type of thing. It, it never says any of that. Um, so there are actions that are pleasing to God. It's assumed that uh, when the Mosaic covenant is given uh, that these people can please God as they kind of follow this uh, revelation. Uh, what I find fascinating is if Adam condemns the whole human race for all of history, why is the man never mentioned again in the Old Testament? He's not mentioned, but in one genealogy, and that's in 1 Chronicles 1.1, you would think if he's that important that he would surface again and again. I mean, but Abraham wins over Adam, hands down. Same with Jacob. Same with David. So number four here is interesting. Adam is not blamed for Cain's act of murder. In other words, Cain is held responsible. It's not like, well, you inherited this uh, action because your, your fa father and mother gave you this type of uh, sinful nature. No, he's held responsible for what he did. And likewise, Adam is not blamed for the flood either. When we come to the flood account, every that generation was addicted to violence. And God says, you mm -hmm. know, they just thought of evil things uh, to do all the time. And, and so God was going to start over again. So uh, there's that angle. So here's an interesting thing. Um, we're not going to have time to get into Romans 5 tonight, but um, in Romans chapter 5, Paul talks about how uh, death came through one man, and likewise, life came through Christ. What's interesting is Paul's not talking about condemnation as much of, as death in chapter 5 of Romans, which means the effect of Adam's sin continues to... Um, have reverberating effects down through the generations. However, Paul doesn't say here that there's this inherited sin nature uh, that's not in the text at all. So what you find, I think, is that we're kind of reading into this. Um, and when Paul talks about works in Romans chapter five, he's talking specifically about the Mosaic law. He's not talking about um, works in general to try to please or win God's approval. So I think at some point here in the near future, um, we'll go through Romans. That'd be a great Wednesday night study because a lot of times we've developed these techniques. And I think some of us have heard of the Romans road to salvation where you you cherry pick a few verses from Romans to tell people how to accept Christ as savior. What's interesting though, is I don't think that's the purpose of Romans. Uh, the purpose of Romans isn't telling us how we get to heaven. I think what the purpose of Romans is trying to do is establish who are the people of God. And that includes Gentiles as well as Jewish people. And Paul, because he wants to establish Rome as his base for future missionary endeavors, wants to unite these two very uh, opposing uh, groups of people that didn't like each other, um, that type of thing. But we'll put that on hold and, 
and maybe we'll pick that up as a study uh, later on. So I do want to uh, suggest this. Whenever issues like this in the Bible come up, there's not just one viewpoint. Uh, there's a series of books that have been established that there's five views on this or four views on this or, or that. And on this particular topic, uh, there's a book called Original Sin and the Fall that there's like five different main interpretations of how to look at the sin of Adam and Eve. And um, I just want to read this because I added it just before uh, the Bible study and it's not in your notes. But one of the things to remember about this discussion is that original sin and the fall are not terms that are taken from scripture. In other words, those are terms that we made up to kind of describe what we think is going on. Secondly, no matter your view, and there's like five views in this book that are outlined, you must admit that theology does not come fully formed from the Bible itself. Rather, scripture provides a story where we extract some data points and then we try to put a, a theological viewpoint together. Thirdly, original sin and the fall have been part of those explanations for how the world and our behavior came to be the way they are today. Um, it is that dark power from the start that we attempt to understand through these doctrines of original sin uh, and the fall of mankind. However, um, the Bible really, outside of this action of Adam and Eve, it really doesn't get into it all that much. Um, there's other books um, that, you know, are quite good on trying to surmise when did evil begin? Was it really with the fall of man or was it a group of angels? Was it Satan? That type of thing. Um, so we're not going to get into the, that tonight. But all I'm trying to tell you is there's more than one way to look at the text. And, um, and we have to kind of wrestle with that a little bit. And we have to, rather than being desirous of saying, okay, which is the right one, mm -hmm. is to go, well, let's think through this a little bit. If you take this position, what are its strengths and weaknesses? If you take this position, what, is, what are the strengths and weaknesses? And trust me, every viewpoint has its strengths and has its weaknesses. So um, in light of that, maybe we're, we put too much pressure on Genesis chapters two through four to try to give to us an explanation of the origin of sin and the consequence of what we all have had to deal with from uh, in each generation. And that is growing old, getting sick and passing away. So um you know, if this does not necessarily answer those questions, then um, maybe we look to other things that are in scripture, or maybe we look to uh, the insights of other um, uh, scientists to help us understand um, this whole subject as well. So anyways, uh, that's just kind of one way of approaching this. Um, and uh, you know, it's a heavy, it's a heavy subject to wrestle with. It really is. Any thoughts that you have? Any more questions? Embrace the mystery. Yeah. So, as he says, we have to embrace the mystery, and there is a lot of mystery. Um, you know, and you know. If you're not good with mystery, you'll get frustrated with the Bible because it raises subjects that it doesn't answer for yeah. us all the time. Yeah, we can't figure out God either. Yeah. So, okay, you know, I'm going to stop there because I need to, but I think the other couple of slides here that are in the uh, handout that I send out to you is pretty easy to follow. Um, there's kind of uh, the point of the Old Testament is knowing the difference between good and evil. That's part of the whole book of Proverbs, in fact. Um, 
So it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not that, hey, this is a bad thing at all times and forever. At a point in time, it was not right for Adam and Eve. Now the serpent comes along as kind of a, a crafty uh, salesman to Eve. And, uh, and now this is another question that, you know, comes up, who is this serpent? Um, we read backwards into the text and we say that's Satan. The text never says that. The text uses a common image of a serpent, which is found in all the ancient Near East. And the serpent can have different representations. It sometimes can represent wisdom, sometimes fertility, sometimes health, sometimes chaos, sometimes immortality, uh, all kinds of things. And, um, you know, maybe we just take that for what it is. Adam and Eve and the rest of the nation of Israel would not have thought of the personality of Satan when they hear this story of a serpent that leads Eve away, because that's just not a part of their context or their culture. But what we find is that we read back into it, and um, we need to be careful of that as well, because the text never specifically says this is Satan, okay? Um, but this image of serpent, this common image in the ancient Near East, is used to describe where mankind kind of goes astray uh, and in this instance leads Adam and Eve astray. So I'm going to leave it at that um, for tonight and um, I hope you know I just gave you some things to chew on a little bit. Uh, don't pressure yourself into trying to say I got to figure this out and get the right answer because you'll drive yourself crazy but it helps us to understand I think what Genesis is doing versus what we think it is doing. And um, that's really kind of my goal is to help you rethink that a little bit. Any closing thoughts? Well, if not, then uh, we'll close our Bible study at this time and, uh, and um, we'll see you then on Sunday, okay? Yeah. Very good. All right. All right. Okay, Bye. thanks. Good night. Bye.